many of us at one point or another have asked that famous question. What am I called to do? What am I called to do? Am I called to go into ministry or am I called to serve a local nonprofit? Am I called to go to this college or that college? Am I called to work for this employer or that employer? Am I called to live in this city or that city? Often when we ask these questions as Christians, we have the good desire within us to want to honor and glorify God with our very lives. It's part of why we're asking the question in the first place is because we're not wanting to step outside of God's will for our lives. We want to do what God wants with our lives. On the other side of this, we can often speak about our calling as a, as a, subject, a, subject, a subjective sense of what we're passionate about. Right? I'm called to serve the homeless and the disenfranchised in this city. I'm called to be a teacher or a doctor. We speak about these things as our calling in life because, hey, this is what we're passionate about. This is what we want to be doing. And we feel like God has, has called us to that very thing. But this understanding of calling can oftentimes quickly turn into something that's mystical. It can turn into a mystical thing where we're looking for a tingling feeling within us to discern what God has called us to do, right? We're looking for a small voice to tell us that this is what God has in store for my life. And in the worst case scenario, it leaves us directionally challenged and unable to make a decision for fear that we're not going to honor God with what we're doing, with the decision that we will ultimately make. However, the Bible doesn't actually use the word calling in that way at all, surprisingly. Rather than focusing on a subjective inner feeling, a biblical understanding of calling is quite objective. It's objective. We know that the scriptures, what the scriptures have said, that God has called us ultimately to salvation and to live holy lives for him. And so long as we're doing what God has told us to do in his word, no matter what we're doing, so long as it's ethical, we know that we are operating within God's calling upon our lives. In our text today, Jesus makes it very clear what a Christian's calling is. And it's precisely because of who Jesus is that he has the authority to call us to obey what he says. And so if you would turn with me in, to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verses 12 to 20. We're going to be looking at Mark, chapter 1, verses 12 to 20. Mark is the second book of the New Testament. If you're new to the New Testament, it's one of the Gospels, one of the four Gospels. You're going to find the Gospel of Mark right after Matthew. It's the second book of the New Testament. Since we began this gospel, the author Mark has sought to lay out Jesus' credentials, right? Rather than starting with Jesus' family background, where he was born, how he was born, all the different family lineage, Mark does not begin there. Instead, what Mark does is that Mark actually begins with a set of claims about Jesus in verse 1, the very opening verse of the entire book. Verse 1 says this, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As we saw in our first sermon in this series, this verse serves really as a, as a banner. It is a headline for the rest of the book, meaning that whenever you come to passage after passage after passage after passage, in the gospel of Mark, 
you ought to be asking yourself, how does this passage actually relate to Mark's purpose for this book? Which is to prove to me that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. And he's the Son of God. That's how you read the Gospel of Mark. Now in our first passage that we looked at, in verses 1 to 11, we saw that Mark actually sought to prove that very thing. He wanted to prove verse 1 by giving us three testimonies about Jesus, right? You may remember what those testimonies are. Testimony of Scripture, testimony of John the Baptist, and then the pinnacle of all the testimonies, God the Father's testimony in verse 11, where he says that Jesus' baptism, you are my Beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And so now as Jesus turns to his public ministry, we learn something about his authority and his power that serve as further proof that Jesus really is the Messiah. He really is the Son of God. And so in our text today, we're going to see further proof of that power and that authority of those very claims that Mark makes In verse 1. And so if you would follow along as I read Mark chapter 1, verses 12 to 20. Mark chapter 1, verses 12 to 20. Immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and the angels were serving him. After John was arrested, Jesus went to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. As he passed alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, Simon's brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Follow me, Jesus told them, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, putting their nets in order. Immediately, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. I think the main idea of this text, of verses 12 to 20, is this. It's that Jesus is the king who has the power to conquer Satan and command our allegiance. I think that's the point of this text that Mark is communicating. Jesus is the king who has the power to conquer Satan and to command our allegiance. I'll say it one more time for those of you taking notes. Jesus is the king who has the power to conquer Satan and command our allegiance. And we are going to see Jesus' power. We're going to see Jesus' authority through the three scenes that we just saw as we worked through that text. So in scene one, which is point number one, verses 12 and 13 right there, we're going to look at the king's conflict. We're going to look at the king's conflict. In scene two, which is point number two, Verses 14 and 15, we're going to look at the king's command. The king's command. And that's right, we've got alliteration all the way through. It was a good week. 
And then in scene three, verses 16 to 20, the king's calling. The king's calling right there, point number three. So we've got the king's conflict, 12 to 13. The king's command, verses 14 and 15. And then in the final scene, the king's calling, verses 16 to 20. Let's look at that first scene right there in in verses 12 to 13, the king's conflict. The first sermon in this series on Mark, it ended on a high note. Jesus steps onto the scene as the one that John has proclaimed that is more powerful than himself. And so we're thinking, man, stuff is looking nice right now. This is looking great for the people of God. Right, if that wasn't enough, at Jesus' baptism, we get the heavens being torn open. The Spirit of God descending on the Son like a dove and the Father declaring, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. I mean, there is no better introduction to somebody's life than that right there. Nobody can rival that introduction. Everything begins on a high note. And so our expectation at this point is that things are going to go swimmingly for Jesus. Like clearly, if it begins like this, I can't even wait to see where stuff is headed from here on out. Then we read verse 12. Immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. Right, This same Spirit who just descended on Jesus from above like a dove, anointing him and commissioning him for his ministry is now driving him into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. Turn of affairs. (laughs) We've gone from a scene of glory to one of conflict in one verse. One verse. And yet the positioning of these two scenes next to each other, I think, actually serves as a helpful application right here at the get-go. Times of spiritual strength can create a false sense of security. I'm not saying that for Jesus, as we're going to see, but it certainly can for us. Times of great spiritual strength can serve as a false sense of security. In one moment, we look at our lives. We believe ourselves to be doing really well spiritually. Other people can see it. They see that we're doing well spiritually. We can see clear spiritual fruit in our lives. It seems like God's hand of blessing is on us in this season of our lives. But it's in those spiritual highs that we can be susceptible to giving in to temptation. Instead of listening to Peter's warning in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, be sober-minded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. Instead of receiving Peter's warning. We start living off of past victories, and we begin to let our guard down. We overlook what we think are little sins at the time because of the spiritual gains that we've made in other areas of our life. I mean, things are seemingly looking up. They look good. That or we end up falsely believing that we will be tempted less the more like Christ we become. As if somehow, because we come, become more like Christ, temptation just kind of falls away and it just goes away. No more to be seen. Friends, we're susceptible to failing morally when spiritual successes create a false sense of security. 
It's in those moments that we no longer remain vigilant that we become the most vulnerable to Satan's attacks. The previous pastor that I served under would often say that when someone's going public with their faith in baptism, oftentimes they're tempted to want to renounce that faith. It's oftentimes in those moments that Satan's attacks start to ramp up, that we hear of something going on in that person's life and they begin to back out or they begin to have some kind of moral falter during that time. And yet this is nothing new, right? We've seen this time and time again over the years. We're all familiar with the spectacular downfalls of popular ministries, popular pastors. They fail morally at the height of their popularity because they let their guard down. They falsely believed that because of their worldly success, such failure would not happen to them. But for us, it serves as just one more lesson to not let times of relative spiritual success create a false sense of security in your own lives. We're to remain vigilant against our sin, lest we become vulnerable to Satan's attacks. But the good news for us is that this is not the case for Jesus. (laughs) That is only the case for us. Jesus did not go through that. Jesus is not caught off. He's not caught off guard by being tempted by Satan in the wilderness. Instead, in verse 12, what does it say? That the Spirit actually drove him into the wilderness. That word drove right there is speaking about divine initiative, God's own doing, his own initiative to drive Jesus out into the wilderness. This was the plan of our triune God the entire time. Jesus wasn't taken into the wilderness kicking and screaming, right, with cuffs around his hands around his back, like, I got to go do this. No, he knew exactly what was going on. He came to conquer sin and death in the works of Satan. Satan was not taking the battle to Jesus. Jesus was taking the battle to Satan. He wasn't the Messiah that people expected. He didn't come to put just Roman armies to flight. He came to put sin, death, and Satan to death. This battle is not against flesh and blood, Paul tells us. It's against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness. It's against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, as Paul puts it in Ephesians 6, verse 12. Mark is showing us that the conflict that Jesus is primarily engaged in currently right now is primarily spiritual. So what we see right here with Jesus, being driven into the wilderness by the Spirit, Satan tempting him for 40 days, we see two separate aims with this scene. And they teach us the difference, really, I think, between testing and temptation from a biblical perspective. Testing and temptation are the same word. How do you know which is going on in the text? Well, it's context that tells you that. Temptation's aim is always negative. Right? It's to get you to act contrary to God's will. Testing's aim is always positive. It's to prove that you're going to remain faithful to act according to God's will. The objective is that you actually pass the test. Whereas with temptation, the objective is to not get you, is to get you to not pass the test. Right? You see the difference between testing and temptation. And so the Spirit is driving Jesus out into the wilderness 
so that he may pass this 40-day test and prove that his credentials are legit, that he really is the Messiah, the Son of God. Notice we're going back to verse 1 over and over again. Satan's aim is the exact opposite of the Spirit's. It's to stop Jesus. It's to tempt him, to reject God's will, to fail the test in the wilderness so that he will fail to be the Messiah and the Son of God. Satan seeks to tempt Jesus because his power is being threatened. The king of God's kingdom has arrived to destroy Satan's work. And this is Satan's last grasp, one of them, to try to take down the king and his kingdom. The Gospels of Matthew and Luke, they actually go further into de- farther into detail about Jesus' temptation in the wilderness than Mark does. And from those passages, we know that Jesus succeeds against Satan. We know that he passes the test. But we also know that Jesus succeeds in Mark's account, though we're not given all of the details. I mean, after all, Jesus continues his ministry after the scene. We know where the Gospel of Mark is headed. We know the end of the story. That he's going to go to a cross. He's going to pay for sin. He's going to rise three days later. But Mark's point in this scene is to show that Jesus' victory and his success over Satan's temptation is ultimately thematically fulfilling where Israel failed. So Mark's point in this scene versus Luke and Matthew is to show us something thematically about Jesus overcoming Satan. Look at how Mark does this. Notice that Jesus is in the wilderness for how many days? 40 days, right? That's intentional. It's mimicking and reenacting Israel's 40-year wandering in the wilderness where they were tested by God. We just read about this in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2, where Moses says to Israel these words, remember that the Lord your God led you on the entire journey these 40 years in the wilderness so that he might humble you and test you to know what is in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. This is also the point of the broader structure that Mark is making. So, for instance, there is no coincidence that there is a son of God, such as like Israel, who passes through the Red Sea and then comes out into the, into the wilderness, and God calls his son to himself and enters into a relationship with him. If you follow every single scene in this text, we're seeing the exact same thing, but with Jesus. The Son of God, just declared in verse 11, has now passed through the waters of his own baptism. Now he's out into the wilderness, being tested for 40 days. And then what is he going to do? But call a people to himself. That's intentional. Mark is showing us what he is wanting to communicate in terms of the point. It's that Jesus succeeds absolutely everywhere that Israel failed to succeed. He succeeds in every way. He is victorious. His success in the wilderness confirms his status as the all-authoritative Messiah and Son of God. It confirms that status that we see in verse 1 that Mark is giving us. Jesus' success is also good news for us. It's good news for us because Jesus' temptation 
actually makes sense of your own. His temptation in the wilderness makes sense of our own wilderness days. C.S. Lewis once wrote in his book, Mere Christianity, that only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what what it would have been like an hour later. But Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. And so, brothers and sisters, Jesus knows the pressure to cave to sin better than we do. He knows it better than every single one of you. They look back at your life and you think, man, you don't know how bad my life was, brother. Well, guess what? Jesus does know because he actually succeeded in not yielding to every temptation that we have faced. He knows the full weight of saying no, 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 all throughout his life, and not only just his life, but clear into eternity. He knows the weight of it all. He knows it better than we do. And that's good news for you and me. It's good news because it gives us hope in every temptation, because Jesus has succeeded in every single way that you will fail in this life. In every wilderness season and temptation that you face, you do not have to question, well, where am I going to go right now? (laughs) Where am I going to go out here? Companies, what do they do? They look for consultants, experts, who have a track record of success to help them in a particular area of of that company. For Christians, we can look to the one whose success far surpasses the success of any consultant and of anyone in history, he has succeeded in every way that we have failed. This is the hope and the grace that we can receive in every single temptation that we encounter in this life. When we fall to temptation, in Jesus, there is what? Forgiveness of sin. In Jesus, there is always sympathy for our weaknesses. He knows exactly what you're going through, even to the fullest extent. In Jesus, there is always grace to help us in our time of need. In Jesus, there is one more powerful than every trial that we, are going to, that we are going to face because he succeeded in every way that we fail. This reshapes how you and I look at temptation. It reshapes how we look at temptation. His success helps to make sense of our own seasons in the wilderness as we go through them. And so when you're tempted to yell at your spouse, you can look to Jesus and see the one whose patience with us produces rest and gratitude within our own hearts for not dealing with us how we ultimately deserve. You can look to him. Why would we want anything different for others and anything different for ourselves? In Jesus, we find that patience. In Jesus, we know that we can be grateful because he is more patient with us than we are with one another and ultimately with him. When you're tempted to idolize status, idolize success, when you're tempted to prize, praise for your job, you can look to Jesus who gives you a better identity than any job, any status that this world will ever put and impose on you. He gives a better status, a better identity. Looking to him is going to protect you from running an anxiety-inducing rat race that ultimately ensures right, that you're striving after 
the wind. He's going to protect you and prevent you from running that rat race. When you see other parents providing more for their kids than you, you don't have to revert to jealousy in that moment of temptation. You can look to Jesus and you can rest in him because he is able to supply all of your needs according to his own riches in glory. He's been there. He knows better than you do all of the different temptations that you face. And he has succeeded. Why would we want to go anywhere else? Why would we want to run to our sin when we've got Jesus who can actually walk us by the hand through that thing, who has actually already been where we will go and has succeeded ahead of us? Friends, the wilderness is a place of preparation. It prepares us for glory. So when when temptation comes, you don't have to run. You don't have to hide. You don't have to loathe your season of testing. Instead, we get to remember the one who passed the test and who succeeded in every way that we will fail. Because in him, there is sympathy and there is strength for you for every temptation you will face. The only question is whether or not you're going to look to him in the face of that temptation. Satan's power is clearly no match for Jesus. Having prepared for his ministry in the wilderness, Jesus now begins his ministry in Galilee, proclaiming a powerful message, which we see in point number two, the king's command. Let's look at verses 14 to 15. Verses 14 to 15. In this next scene right here, we see the baton passing from John the Baptist to Jesus. The one who represented the age of promise is now passing that baton to the one who represents the age of fulfillment. Salvation has arrived, and now Mark is focusing on the one who is going to accomplish that salvation. He says in verse 14, After John was arrested, Jesus went to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. Notice where Jesus did not begin his ministry. He didn't begin in Jerusalem. That's what we would have expected. He didn't didn't begin with all the power brokers and all the religious elite in society. He didn't begin by addressing the politicians and those in religious power in Jewish society. Instead, he began an insignificant Galilee, a Jewish settler region west of the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus would enjoy some of his greatest success and his greatest popularity. It's also where he commissioned the disciples after his own death and resurrection. Galilee is significant precisely because Galilee is insignificant. That's why it's significant. This is not where we would expect the Messiah, the one that people long to come to begin his own ministry. But it's a place that holds great promise for the gospel. It's a reminder for us that those that we would expect to be the most receptive to Jesus' message often are not the most receptive. We would expect him to get praised going into Jerusalem, being in Jerusalem among all the religious elite. And that is not at all what we see. Those the world deems insignificant are clearly significant in God's eyes. This is part of the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God. God's kingdom won't be made up of those who do not see their need for it. It's not made up of those who don't see their need for the kingdom but those who see the kingdom's arrival and know their need to enter it. It's made up of all of those. 
But how do we enter God's kingdom? Well, more important than a place that Jesus actually began his ministry is the content of Jesus' message. Mark says that he proclaimed good news of God. Jesus describes this good news in verse 15. You can look there. The time is fulfilled, he says, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. To understand why this is good news, we've got to understand both aspects right here of Jesus' message. Right? We need to understand the nearness of his kingdom and how because his kingdom is near, we need to repent and believe. Those are both aspects of Jesus' message. Number one, the kingdom is near. Number two, you need to repent and believe. And so let's consider the kingdom's nearness first. When Jesus declares that the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. He's referring to the same event. It's referring to this new age of salvation that would be brought about by the arrival of the Messiah. When it comes to biblical history, there are really two ages. There's the age of promise and the age of fulfillment. Right? In the age of promise, we get God promising to renew all things, to establish his kingdom and his rule through the Messiah. And then the age of fulfillment is when that day actually comes. It's the fulfillment of all of those promises that God has made to us. In the Old Testament, the prophets would often speak of the age of fulfillment as the latter days, the end times. They believed that this would come you know, at the end of history, after much suffering, when the Messiah would restore his people to himself and he would usher them into a new creation with a new heavens and a new earth. Right? If you just want to see that even in the Old Testament, you can go to the very end of the book of Isaiah, chapters 65 and 66. You see all of that in the prophets. But when we come to the New Testament, we see the apostles insisting that the latter days have actually broken into history earlier than expected because of Jesus' first coming. And so what the Old Testament foresaw, what the Old Testament foresaw would happen at the end of days has begun to be fulfilled by Jesus' first coming and will actually be fully realized at his second coming. And so now for us as Christians, we live in this, this overlap of the ages, right? It's often what theologians call the already and not yet. We live in the last days when the kingdom of God is both a present reality, it's already here, because of Jesus' first coming. And yet, it is not yet fully realized. It's a future hope because of Jesus' second coming, when he will make all things new. So why is this important? Why is this good news for you and me? Because the age of salvation has finally arrived. This is the day. You know, you and, all, you and I are probably used to hearing the gospel regularly. Like, Jesus has come, like we know. We've heard about it for 2,000 years. But you have to understand, they have been waiting for this moment forever. They've been looking forward to the day that the prophets declared were the latter days, whenever the Messiah would show up and establish his kingdom, renew all things, and usher his people into a new creation. They've been waiting for this moment for so long, and yet it is finally here. That's exactly what Jesus is getting at. The time is fulfilled. The king has arrived. This is good news for us because not only is the day of salvation come in Christ, but he is the one who can actually accomplish this salvation that has been proclaimed for so long. 
The only right response to this good news, Jesus says, is to repent and believe it. To repent and believe it. Jesus' focus is not upon bringing political change and economic change. Certainly that's going to happen in his second coming. Clearly he's going to make all things new. It's going to affect everything from top to bottom. But that's not now. The bigger issue at stake is mankind's enmity with God. The bigger issue at stake is man's own heart. And Jesus tells us that in order to enter into this kingdom, in order to flourish within his kingdom, under his rule and under his reign, we've got to repent and we need to believe. And so when Jesus speaks about both of these things, repentance and faith, he's not talking about a one-time decision, right? If you look at both of those words, it's talking about ongoing repentance, ongoing faith, right? This is not a one-time decision. It's an ongoing posture of our hearts throughout our entire lives. So to repent is not only to just repent once, but it's every day. I'm waking up and I'm seeking to repent. To repent is to turn away from sin, to abandon our allegiance to anything else, right? To forsake our sin, to do a U-turn from rebelling against God and instead to turn to Christ in faith. As Martin Luther once said, the entire life of believers is to be one of repentance. Each day for the Christian is both a funeral service and a coronation service. A funeral service and a coronation service. It's a funeral service because when you wake up each day, you recognize a funeral's got to happen. I'm going to die to myself today in order to follow Jesus. And so it's a funeral service every day of your life. But it's also a coronation service every single day of your life. Because you recognize, I'm dead to living for my own self, but guess what? Christ is the king of my life. Today is coronation day. It didn't just happen in Frozen. This has been happening for a long time. Every day is a coronation day for you, where Christ reigns supreme and as the king of your very life lives. Each day, a coronation to him. I serve and I submit to Jesus. But how can I live as a faithful citizen of his kingdom today? Well, when we repent, we repudiate every action and desire that seeks to rival Christ for his throne. But that's only one side of the coin, right? Repentance is only one side of that conversion coin. There's another side to that coin, and that's faith. We've got to turn to Christ. If we're turning away from our sin, that means that we need to turn to something. We are going to turn to something. We don't need to turn to other idols in our hearts. We need to turn to Jesus. And so this is what we call the doctrine of conversion. Both repentance and faith are the doctrine of conversion. It's responding to God's own work in our hearts by the work of the Holy Spirit. When God opens up your eyes to finally see and believe Jesus for who he is, right? You respond to him by turning from your sin and trusting in Jesus. That's the doctrine of conversion. And so faith is that other side of the coin to repentance. Faith is an ongoing reliance and trust upon Jesus' person and work alone to save us. Faith is not the hand that works for salvation. It is the hand that receives the one who has already worked salvation for you, through his own death and resurrection. Faith is not a blind leap in the dark, right? Like Indiana Jones and the 
Raiders of the Lost Ark, or whatever, Last Crusades. My goodness, I'm even botching the names of these movies. But it's not like Indiana Jones, who's trying to cross that chasm, right? And he's like, I've just got to jump, and then like the, the walkway is just going to appear below my feet. That's not what faith is. Faith is not a blind leap in the dark. It's not an irrational choice in spite of all the evidence. Well, I, I see the evidence. doesn't look good, but I'm just going to go anyway. It's not irrational. But not only do we know Christ right, did this, not only are we to solely just base everything off of evidence either, as if it's, well, I see all the evidence. Okay, I've got to see all the evidence before I can believe. Well, it's not that either, right? Though there is plenty of evidence to see. Faith is knowing that Christ lived a sinful life, that he died for sins, that he resurrected from the dead. But not only do we know that Christ did this, you have to believe that he did those things. And not only do we believe it, but then we place our trust in Christ to actually save us from our sins and secure for us an eternity with him. We not only know it, right? Not only do I know that this is a pulpit, I believe it's a pulpit. I can clearly touch and see it. There's evidence it's a pulpit. But then at some point, i got to put my weight on this thing to hold me up. I'm believing and I'm placing my trust in this pulpit to be able to hold my body weight up. That's what faith is in Jesus. This is why the kingdom right here, it's why the kingdom's nearness and the king's arrival is such good news. It's because salvation has come and so has the one who can accomplish it for us. And he has called us to repent of our sin and to trust in him. And so if you're here today and you've not repented of your sin and you've not placed your trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I want to command you to do so because that's what Jesus is doing. He is commanding you to repent and believe. Recognize that Jesus is not just kind of giving you a suggestion right here. He's not saying, hey, Here's some helpful tips and tricks for how to live a good life, right? He's not giving you good advice. He's not giving you a suggestion. This is a divine ultimatum that you must turn from your sin and trust in him because he is the king and the kingdom has arrived and he will bring about salvation. And so friend, understand, understand the unique stage in redemptive history that you live in. It is not a coincidence that God has placed you where he has placed you in time, right? This gospel being proclaimed to you is a gift of God to you. The angels, Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1, verse 12, they long to catch a glimpse of this salvation. They long to catch a glimpse of these things. This is not just another day in history. This is what all other days in history were anticipating and looking forward to. The kingdom has come. And the king of the kingdom is commanding that you respond to this good news through repentance and faith. And so turn from your sin. Trust in Christ who died in our place for our sins, who conquered death through his own resurrection, not to erect a kingdom, your kingdom, but instead so that you might enter his own kingdom. Enter that kingdom by turning from your sin and trusting in him who paid for that sin. What does this repentance and faith look like? It's our final scene, final point. Point number three, the king's calling, verses 16 to 20. What does this repentance and faith look like? Well, this final scene right here really has two parts 
that are communicating one point. Two parts that communicate one point. Jesus is calling two sets of brothers. The first set right there is Andrew and Simon. Simon is Peter. The second set is James and John, the sons of Zebedee, or as I like to call them, or the scriptures call them, the sons of thunder, the Bash brothers themselves. Notice what we learn right here about Jesus' call on their lives. In the first scene, Jesus is passing along the Sea of Galilee. He sees Simon, he sees Andrew casting a net into the sea. And in verse 17, he says, follow me and I will make you fish for people. The next verse says, immediately they left their nets and followed him. After Jesus went a little further, he saw James and John putting their nets in order. And in verse 20, it says, immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Friends, when Jesus calls us to himself, he demands a whole life commitment. He demands all of us. He can demand such a thing because of who he is, right? He is the king of the kingdom. He has arrived. He is here. He's the son of God who has all authority to not only command that we repent and believe, but also that we follow and enter into the work that he calls us to do, which is to fish for people. And so to follow Jesus, it's really talking about our discipleship to Jesus, right? It's a call to come, to learn from Jesus as both master and teacher. Now, this is not normally how it would happen in the first century among Jewish students looking for a rabbi. That's often how it would happen. They would go out and they would choose what rabbi they wanted to to study under. Jesus says, no, I'm going to go call my people for myself. I don't work like normal rabbis. And so when Jesus calls them, they follow immediately. And following Jesus, as we see right here, comes with a cost. These men are not leaving things that are inconsequential to them. Things that just kind of like, oh, I could just take it or leave it. No, they're leaving those things that they often identified themselves with. Those things that were of the highest value in that culture. Those things that would rival Jesus as the highest priority in their life. That's what they're leaving. Andrew and Simon left their nets, their job, their livelihood, their wealth. James and John left their father, their family, all to follow Jesus. And what we see right here is that Jesus' call is urgent and the response is absolute because of his presence and authority. It demands it because of who he is. This isn't just anyone calling these men to follow him. This is the one whose authority demands that we follow him when he calls. There is no job. There's no paycheck. There's no family. There's no career, no children, no season of life, no other rival commitments that should crowd out our consistent, wholehearted allegiance to Jesus. When he calls us to come to him, he is calling us to die to ourselves. He's calling us to realign our priorities and our ambitions in light of his own authority and purpose. But brothers and sisters, do you view Jesus' call in your own life like that? Is that how you view Jesus' call upon your own life? Is he just another thing in your schedule? Or is he the one that your entire schedule revolves around as a person and even as a family? 
Would you say that Jesus is the highest priority of your life? Or is he one among a lot of different higher priorities? The demands of Jesus' kingdom are radical. That may mean some of you leave careers to go into full-time ministry. There are some of you that may leave to go cross-culturally, proclaiming the gospel at the ends of the earth. But for the vast majority of Christians, it means living radically different lives in the ordinary, mundane moments of your lives throughout every single week of your life. Right? You don't have to strictly be radical to go overseas, though I think some of you should go overseas and take the gospel to the ends of the earth. But you can live radically in those ordinary, mundane moments that you think mean nothing and are inconsequential. Consider what a life committed to Christ looks like. Consider what it would cost you to follow him in those mundane moments of your life. For parents with kids in sports, it may mean that you forgo travel ball. And instead, you play rec. Why? So that you can actually be gathered with the body for worship on Sunday. It may mean making that cost. For those in the corporate world, it may mean getting looked down upon and getting looks when you don't join in the festivities of Pride Month along with everybody else. It may mean that for you. For others, it may mean foregoing a promotion at work because it's going to have you working on Sundays, once again, not able to gather with the body. For those of you who are with close-knit families, it may mean actually sacrificing your time with your family in order to bring other people into that time with your family. It may mean sacrificing some of that. For others, it may mean that you don't let the size of your living space actually hinder you from showing hospitality. But you don't understand, i got a 500-square-foot apartment. It's still a place where the love of Christ can be shared in that small space. You don't let that hinder you. Allegiance to Christ has called me to hospitality. That's why I'll do it. All of these are examples of the radical cost that we make to follow Jesus in the mundane circumstances of our lives. Our priorities will reveal where our allegiance lies. So we shouldn't treat Jesus like he came to build our own kingdoms, but instead he has come to call us into his own and to follow him in submission to every facet of our very lives. Many of us are going to spend an inordinate amount of time wondering what God wants us to do with our lives. What is our calling? But here Jesus makes it clear. When he commands us to follow him, he commands us with a promise. He will make us fish for people. Right? That command comes with a promise to us. And yet, when you look at the image of fishing for people throughout the Old Testament, it's always in the context of judgment. So, for instance, if you go to Jeremiah chapter 16, verse 16, God declares he's actually going to get fishermen from the nations to come in and catch his people and take them into exile in a foreign nation because they have sinned against God. Fishermen in the Old Testament, negative term to talk about judgment. And yet, Jesus reverses this image of judgment into an image of salvation. No longer is God calling people to fish in judgment. He is calling us to fish for salvation. We fish for people with the net of the gospel. We call them to enter God's kingdom through repentance of their own sin, through faith in Jesus and his resurrection from death to life. Some will do that fishing, as we've already talked about, at the ends of the earth, 
but the majority of us are going to be doing it in our homes, in our neighborhoods, and in our workplaces week after week. This is the life that Jesus has called us to. And so we can spend an an inordinate amount of time trying to guess if God wants me to take that job, wants me to live in that place, or date that person. We can spend a lot of time thinking about that. When in reality, we already know, most importantly, what God has called us to be doing. And so the question now becomes, well, am I going to be able to be faithful to God and fish for people and following Christ in that job, in that place, or in that relationship? It begins to, we begin to realign and reimagine what our calling really is according to the scriptures. That's the bigger question. It's whether or not we're going to remain faithful to follow Jesus and to fish for people with wherever God takes you in this life. Following Jesus means fishing for people. But is that the calling that you think that God has put upon your life? Is that the one that comes to mind when you think, when somebody asks you, what are you called to do? Is that very calling the one that comes to your mind? It is for Jesus. And his calling on our lives supersedes all others because of who he is and what he came to do. Jesus is the king who has the power to conquer Satan and to commit and to command command a wholehearted life devotion and commitment to him. He can do that. Why? Because he is the Messiah. He is the son of God. Is your life committed to this Messiah? Let's pray. Father, we give praise to you because, one, you have called us to saving faith in Christ. So many in here have been called to salvation, called to a holy life, called to fish for people. Lord, we pray for your mercy for us and for the work of the Spirit within us. Lord, we pray that you would work in us so that we might be faithful to go out and call people to repentance and faith, even if we get looks, so that many may enter into your kingdom and be saved. Lord, we pray that we would be faithful to fish for people. Lord, we also pray that we would rightly understand who Jesus is and the command that he has put upon our life. Lord, we pray that our lives would be one where we look at our priorities and clearly from those priorities in our lives, we recognize our wholehearted allegiance to him. Lord, we pray that would be true of us as a church. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.